Lawrence Barrett is a pioneering aviation engineer, entrepreneur and active member of the Brunel Alumni Association. He has worked and lived in Singapore since 2014. His career in aerospace started as a systems engineer in 2002. In September 2012, he started an MBA in aviation at Brunel University. After making the challenging decision to leave a successful career as an engineer, after graduating, he moved to Singapore working as a self-employed aviation business specialist. Then, in May 2015, he made the daunting decision to found his own aviation company, Barrett Aerospace. And I do actively employ people that are passionate about the jobs that they do. So much so uh, that I would even create the job around the person. I sat down with him in his engineering workshop for a conversation that covered his path from engineer to founder, a few of the exciting developments that he's involved with, and the role that Brunel has played in his career and business development. The MBA taught me a lot, but I think the real world teaches you a lot more. Um, and when you have something that's a deadline that's looming this conversation is part of a new venture with the Brunel Alumni Association. The format is based on my Entrepreneurs in Action series, and we are looking to evolve it into a standalone podcast series focused on Brunel alumni based in Singapore. So please send your ideas and suggestions to me on LinkedIn. So now, without further delay, let's begin. So you leave school, let's start mm -hmm. there. You leave school, and what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I left school with, I would say, normal grades. Uh, they weren't exemplary, um, nothing earth-shattering. Um, and I think at that time, when I did my A-levels, uh, I thought, well, if I didn't score highly enough to get into, at that time, Bristol Polytechnic, I would join the RAF. I mean, it was that sort of decision that I had in my mind so it was one or the other I, I definitely wasn't going to I, I didn't want to go back and do a another year of <laughs> trying to pass my um, A-levels but luckily I did well enough to get into to Bristol uh, Polytechnic as it was uh, the following year it became the University of the West of England that's when a lot of polytechnics converted um, and then I did a um, aerospace degree uh course. Um, I started in a foundation course with, with with them and then did an aerospace degree, which lasted another four years. And then from there, spent, you know, almost um, sort of 15 years in industry, uh, working for um, multinational companies. Um, so companies like Talis Aerospace and um, uh, GE Aviation, um, and really learning how companies worked you know, procedures, processes that they used, and also the different type of roles that were available. What was your role when you were working for, during that 15 yeah, years? 15 years. So I think I covered just about every uh, type of engineering role. So I started life as a production engineer, working on the shop floor, uh, very diverse. Um, at one mo moment, you, you could be running a machine to manufacture something, and then the following week, I could be at an air show um, on a stand, um, sort of trying to present an exhibit for the, on behalf of the company. 
Um, and another week I could be uh, attending some courses or looking at uh, something like, as we were back in the day, lean, lean manufacturing. Um, but what I found was that every three or four years, I would look to do another role within engineering. So for example, um, after about three, four years, I, I then went into uh, what, was called, what I would call system engineering, um, looking at the combination of hardware and software and integrating those products for the, for the company I worked for. Um, and I did a small stint as, a, um, as an R&D engineer for six months. Uh, unfortunately, it was an area that I, I felt a bit overwhelmed uh, with. It was, uh, it was something that I really thought I'd be good at, but I found that I actually wasn't that good at, on that subject. So, so, you know, you try and you dip your toes in sometimes and you realize that that's not for me. Um, and eventually, I, I then got settled into, a, I guess, my longest spell as an engineer as a, um, a supply, supplier relationship um, stroke anal uh, analyst or engineer. And what that is, is there was a time in the early 2004 when a lot of big companies had um, centralized a lot of what they did and they, they began outsourcing so many of what they would have done in the past. Uh, so come sort of 2006, they were now realizing that to create the next product, they would have to engage some of these suppliers and bring them in to help co-develop whatever was coming up. Uh, and they needed engineers to join with the procurement teams that were going out to these companies, um, understanding, trying to understand what they, they do, for they currently did, but equally understanding what they could do on the future projects, on future development and innovation projects. So that's where, as an engineer, I, I f formally joined the procurement team of a very large company. Um, and that's what really got me out and about. I think, uh, so, you know, we're, we're moving now to sort of 2007, 2008. I was traveling all over the UK at the time, and I my role was to look at the top 200 companies, uh, suppliers for that comp for our company, um, so-called strategic suppliers, and to really understand what they did, make sure that everything that they should be doing was being done properly, um, and also trying to evaluate what they could be doing as a future technology for, for my company I worked for. It was around that time, so 2010, 2011, when I kind of got to the top of that tree. Um, I was... The, the manager for the all of the um, supply chain uh, key comp key suppliers for that for my company I worked for, and I decided, well, what next? And I think when we talk about careers, you start thinking, well, do I look at my boss's job and say, well, is that something I wanted? Well, I did that, and I thought, no, I don't want to do what he does, and it was very procurement, it was very purchasing. Um, there was a something called CSIPS, which is a, a qualification, a bit like accounting, where you can get that and then you're formally recognized mostly around the world and in the West as being a very good uh, procurement professional. I decided that wasn't for me. Um, actually, I got offered the course, and it's very expensive by the company, and that's when I started looking at MBAs. Um, and I realized then that, you know, 
if I, this was in my early 40s at the time, and I thought if I didn't change or at least switch to where I really wanted to go for the next 20, 30 years, I don't think I would have the opportunity to do any other time. So I took the decision to pull out of that job, which I liked, and look for MBAs that would give me the skills and the know-how and the ability to become effectively a manager of engineers. Um, were you worried? Myself. Were you worried about that? Yeah, I think it was a big worry for me. Um, I left a good salary. I left a full-time role. Um, but I think I was quite convicted. Uh, my, you know, I was quite um, sure that my future lay elsewhere. I didn't quite know where. Uh, and that's probably the, the most uh, worrying part of that, my life at that time. Um, but I thought, well, okay, um, I, would I would take one year, do a full-time MBA with Brunel University, and I will use that year to explore and hopefully decide at the end of it which direction I was going to go career-wise. So what did your friends and family say when you made that decision that you were going to give up a good job yeah. and go and be a student again? <laughs> yeah, well, my wife needed uh, to know what I was doing um, because effectively my you know, financial burden would, would rest with her for a few years until I either found another job or decided how I was going to take the MBA forward. Um, I, I would say that there was, there was criticism. Um, friends were quite encouraging, surprisingly, and, and, and everyone sort of thought, they, they saw something in me that fitted the role that I was, you know, the, this sort of trend that I was on. Family members were a little bit more skeptical. Why was that? I think they they probably saw it from a, you know, a risk point of view. You know, you're, you was the risk going to be worth it in the end? And they were probably looking out for me. So you know, these are people who are closer to me and and would have uh, sort of you know, want the best for me. Um, so maybe this was a risk that they thought could go horribly wrong. Um, thankfully, it didn't. <laughs> but, but having said that, um, I really did feel, and I walked into the first day of my degree thinking, this is not so much for me about grades that I get at the end. You know, I didn't matter that it would be a distinction or not, or otherwise, it was more about what I was going to learn uh, and I was also quite adamant that I'd be learning from the people around me. So, you know, my cohort, um, I was not the oldest one. I think I was the third eldest in, in my cohort. But, uh, you know, I certainly recognized that there were 20-somethings, early 20-somethings that saw things a lot differently than I did. So how old were you? When... I th yeah, I think I was 39, 39 when I started. Yeah, so just on the, sh you know, turning 40. Yeah. So why did you choose Brunel? <laughs> well, for me, it was a location thing. Um, I, I was by that time we were living in Surrey. My kids were at school there, and um, you know it was half an hour's drive along the M25 and into Uxbridge. So I think I was looking for commutable universities at the time. Uh, not just that, I think uh, I, I actually looked back in my history, and when I was deciding on which universities to go to for my engineering degree, I did consider Brunel at the time. Um, unfortunately, I think my grades wouldn't have been high enough to get in. 
So, you know, it wasn't on the option list, so to speak. But uh, to be able to come in years later, I think, uh, you know, it was like a university. I felt I could have been in from day one. But, um, yeah, that, that, that's what happened there. Okay. So you're, at that time you were living in Surrey. Mm. And now you're living in Singapore. So just take us through that journey. <laughs> sure. So uh, I mentioned before that I had decided to take the year-long MBA course as a proving ground for my ideas. So I, I think I had two or three career options that I thought I'd be interested in doing. Um, I can't remember all three. I can remember one of them was um, uh, online retail. Um, at that time, there was something called um, product um, inventory management PIMS and using software to resell online. And I thought, okay, everyone was talking about um, eBay and um, Amazon and everything was all doing quite well. This is 2011, 2012. Um, so that I thought, well, maybe that's something I should explore. And I did. So as part of the, um, the course, I, the, it was the marketing paper that I wrote was based on this PIM software, which I had got in contact with a company in India that was trying to deploy this. Uh, tried that, wrote the paper on it, and at the end of it, decided, no, that's not for me. I just didn't like the, you know, retail wasn't something that stirred my emotions and, and made me sort of passionate about it. So it was a good exercise because it ruled out something that I thought I might be good at and, and moved me on to the next step, which was doing something in aerospace. Um, and trying to, if you like, um, refocus on what in aerospace uh, what I like to do. You've got your MBA. Yeah. You're going into aerospace. From what I know, is quite ex an expensive business to go into. It is. It is. Um, I, I should have pointed out that the the degree choice was based on the aviation um, flavored MBA at Brunel. So, it, you know, two of the modules were uh, aviation orientated. And I think that was the other attraction for Brunel. But it also, it, it allowed me to look at what I was doing as an engineer in an aerospace environment in the bigger, wider world, which is the commercial aviation world, which is these air, aircraft need to fly, need to operate, and most importantly, need to make money. Um, you know, that history is littered with aircraft that are very good designs, but haven't been a commercial success. I mean, Concorde is one of them. You know, it flew very well. It was the fastest aircraft at one time. But, you know, the cost to run it far outweighed the money that was ever earned uh, flying it as, you know, as a passenger service. So, you know, I felt that that needed some correction. Um, and as an engineer going into a business world in aerospace, I should at least appreciate the factors and the um, success, uh, you know, uh, influences, if you like, that would help create something that would be long-lasting and, and be a commercial viable success. So you, I think what you're saying is that engineers possibly are so focused on the engineering aspect that they forget the costs I mean, there's one example that comes to mind is that uh, we're working on a project. Uh, it's called the Merlion Project. And it's a HPA, which is a human-powered aircraft. Uh, for those of you who don't know what 
human-powered aircraft are. It's exactly what it says. It's, it's an aircraft that's powered by us humans. You mean so, like in the Matrix? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, worse than that. Think of a bicycle with a propeller and a couple of wings. So yeah. it's, it's as simple as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, I pedal a bike, it drives a propeller, and it allows me to fly. So, um, it, you know, if we, if we go back in time and say, well, why are we interested in flight? Why am, I interest, uh, why am I an aerospace engineer? It is because I love to see things fly. And if you go back to the earliest of mankind's sort of vision, looking up and seeing birds flying around and thinking, how do we do that? You know, you've got to say, well, have we really achieved the level that a bird has, which is, you know, I want to get up, I, I flap my wings and away I go. Um, no, we haven't. I mean, we, we use engines, we use propulsion, we use um, fuel uh, to, you know, that gives us a, enough power to get airborne. But to be airborne by our own strength and our own, you know, uh, muscle power, uh, there are very few people that have done it. So is that something that you're working with with Brunel? Yes, yes. Yeah. This is, so this is the latest, I would um, sort of an interesting um, potential pro potential project. So it's, it's not been fully sort of um, you know etched out how we're going to work together and collaborate. But essentially, I need to lean on some of the new technologies that are coming up that will allow us to create an ultralight aircraft that requires the minimum amount of power, um, because, simply because as humans, we don't have as much power as we think we have. Um, so for those of you who are interested in Strava and cycling, you know, we're looking at a power of about 200 watts continuously for two hours to do what we're trying to do, which isn't a lot. I mean, um, a light bulb, you know, a traditional light bulb could be, uh, you know, 100 watts, uh, 150 watts. So, you know, the power, convert the power of a single light bulb, that's what we can do as a human. It isn't that much. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so therefore, um, you know, my foray into composite design and, and building aircraft is coming into play. However, uh, it's a system, and systems require lots of technologies coming together, lots of different fields working together. And that's where uh, we have to realize what we're good at, and we have to then lean on or at least uh, collaborate with people who are good at the other aspects that you need. Before you told me about the switch from drones to other aircraft, can you yeah. just take us through that, the reasons for that? Yeah, okay, sure. Um, so during so the COVID, uh, you know, the aerospace industry took a big hit. Uh, um, no one was flying, if you remember. And, you know, very uh, many of the projects that even that we were looking to work on had, had, had gone quiet. I think they, they hadn't died, but certainly everyone was sort of, um, you know, pushing these projects out to the right. So uh, I made a conscious decision that we'd either, we weren't going to sit there doing nothing, we were going to focus on at least learn something else. So, you know, university is about learning, but I, I believe companies should also be about learning. So we set about setting up a small team that would look into UAVs and drones and develop the expertise on our own um, and eventually become operators in our own right to allow us to really explore 
what this new world might be in terms of um, electronic aircraft and electronic flight. We, we did have this um, foray with electric flight back in 2018. We had been approached by a company called Eviation, who were developing the world's first um, all-electric aircraft. It's a nine-seater aircraft, um, including two pilots, so that's 11-seater in total, that would be developed in the USA. And we were brought in to co-develop with them the empennage or tail section of that aircraft. And we had a very, very strict or <laughs> challenging time frame of 10 months in which to do it. Um, the MBA taught me a lot, but I think the real world teaches you a lot more. Um, and when you have something that's a deadline that's looming, in, you know, you can imagine you've been given a, a design brief and someone says in 10 months' time, give me something that's going to fly and prove it. That's what we did. Um, I, I can only do that by working with other people and collaborating. Um, I have very good contacts within the UK, and these are contacts that I had built up when I was with my previous roles, so I can't discount the value of, of experience uh, in any job that you do um, and building relationships, and then being able to exercise them at that time meant that we were able to deliver that project on time and on budget. Um, the Alice aircraft, as it was called, uh, was unveiled at the Paris Air Show in 2019, July, and a quite a, you know, reflective moment is that, you know, that would not have existed without, one, the experience that I'd had before. What's your title with Bar Aerospace? Okay, so <laughs> this is where I don't want to get too big-headed. Um, I'm still an engineer. Um, I like yeah, that's what, that's what I was getting at, because <laughs> yes. you've mentioned engineering and engineer so yep. many times. But you are the... I am the CEO. CEO. Uh, CEO and founder. Yeah. So, so it's, the book stops with me, but it also starts with me, I hope. Um, it, it, again, you know, we need to have people that know what they're doing, running companies that, you know, make sense to them and, and, and they get it. Um, you know, I would love and I do actively employ people that are passionate about the jobs that they do. So much so uh, that I would even create the job around the person, not the other way around. So when I interview someone, I think, well, what type of role will best suit this person? And I can then can I, as the company owner or the, the director or the um, manager, create that role for the person? And I think that's a much better and smarter way to, to run a company. You know, um, if we have more innova uh, innovation based on uh, passion, um, and I, I know that's a very used word now, but, you know, I think if we, if we follow that, uh, that, that sort of methodology, I think we would have far better companies. And I don't think I'm the only one. There are many startup companies who are using this um, blueprint um, for their you know, innovation. You know, they, they are hiring people based on passion and determination, drive and grit. We, we know all the words. But, but, if you, yeah. but if you go back to the other thing you mentioned about the cost, how do you get the two together? How do you marry the two together? Yes, I think, yes, we still live in the real world. Um, return investment's always there. 
costs and budgets are always there. Um, from my perspective, um, having worked on very significant programs for uh, large MNCs and having done risk analysis, uh, you know, activities, you know, there are very rarely there, there are more than a handful of people that are absolutely critical to any program, even the most <laughs> the significant programs that you think, you know, um, and my simple tack is to liaise and, and have uh, relationships and, and um, do work with those handful of, that handful of people that are critical to get what we want done. So, you know, for me, it's about the quality uh, and of, of the few rather than, you know, having to work with many and sort of, uh, you know, we, we, we want to be agile um, and that keeps our costs down. But there are still costs, but at least we can control them. Yeah. So what are you working on at the, specifically at the moment? Yeah, so, so I think uh, if I go back to the uh, human-powered aircraft, the Merlin project that we're working on, this is one where, you know, we are doing this on a, I wouldn't even say a, a shoestring. It's probably on a string of a shoestring budget. But that's okay. Um, we, I take it, you know, it may take longer. Uh, your incremental movement forward isn't as you know, you know, as fast as we want it to be. But I think I take the view that as long as we move forward and we we advance, then it, it will work out. Um, but equally, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working with other companies and startups that move along this line of crowdfunding and other forms of revenue generation which I'm yet to explore as a company, but certainly I think there are projects that many of the listeners here will be working on that will be funded that way, you know, maybe non-traditional sources of funding. But, you know, again, it's going to be on deliverables. You know, we talked about not spending too long on a project, not over-engineering and, and getting something that fits the requirement, fits the purpose, but in a short space of time. I think these are the um, the skills and, and the mindset that we've got to have going forward. How can the Singapore Alumni Association help? Well, uh, I think if anyone's in any doubt, I think just the fact that you're listening to this podcast is a result of the Singapore Alumni, Brunel Alumni effort. Um, you know, uh, in, on this podcast, we have so Neville McKenzie, who's, you know, his his experience and his um, speciality is in providing these sort of podcast services. So please look out to him if you're interested. Um, I I can thoroughly recommend his approach. I mean, it's it's so far uh, one of the more professional that I've come across. Um, but in terms of the alumni, you know. You know, I may have mentioned before that we're on this journey in our careers and in our lives, and you don't quite know who you're going to meet or where it's going to end up. And I strongly believe that meeting people generally and genuinely listening to what they say and, you know, taking on board, you know, other ideas, even if it's, you know, counter to what you believe, sometimes that's what makes us better rounded in, in our own careers. So, you know, 
the alumni in Singapore, we work pretty well. I think we meet quite regularly. Um, I don't think we have ever had, uh, you know, we've never, never gone a, a six-month period without having an opportunity to meet up. So, and we form relationships out of the back of that, very good relationships. Some will be allowing us to work together in terms of a business relationship or, or career-wise, but others might just be, um, you know, more instructive in our lives, you know, trying to direct us at times when we just need another opinion or uh, someone to provide a bit of insight from their perspective. So, you know, I go into it with an open mind, um, but I'm happy to say that we're seeing the results. Uh, I'm seeing the results of the, you know, how this can affect a career or how it can affect a business. So the other thing I would point out from the alumni is that, you know, there's a possible misconception that you have to meet with people of your own age group or your own... Um, your, you know, the fact, you know, whether you did engineering or business studies, you know, that if you were going to meet someone from another sector, that somehow that wouldn't apply to you or it wouldn't be worthwhile. Uh, I beg to differ. I, I think absolutely having the counter arguments and, and other uh, perspectives can enhance the way that you make your decisions uh, in your own role. And, um, and, and if, if only you meet up and have a few beers or a pizza or something like that, you know, I, if, again, if you're listening to this, maybe you're an alumni and you're not very active uh, with your own uh, regional alumni, do get in touch. I think there are people there, you know, you, you'll be surprised at what you can benefit from out of these groups. Okay, thanks very much. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Okay, so uh, we have a website, so it's at Barrett Aerospace. Um, uh, so it's www.barrettaerospace.com, uh, B-A-R-R-E-T-T, aerospace, all one word. And uh, there's a mailing opportunity there. You can get in touch with me there. Um, equally, um, you know, we, we do have, I think, um, some connectivity via the Brunel alumni um, there's, there, there is a, an office there, and there are a few people that, I mean, if, if you look on the website, I think you can get in touch with, uh, contact them through the um, Brunel alumni. Um, and, yeah, quite happy to get in touch with anyone who may have some inquiries about what maybe what I've discussed, or even um, want to talk about how do they set up their own alumni uh, in their country. Because I, I, I am aware that Brunel students are far and wide, uh, and from all parts of the corner uh, of the globe where you may, maybe you could be the ambassador for your alumni in your country if there isn't one. So, yeah, I think get in touch with the university. And are you looking for any students? Yeah, I think we're, we've got, we're coming to that time of year. Um, so I think August, September is usually the time that uh, students might take on placements with uh industrial placements of which we may consider one or two this year so yeah i mean if you if you if you're interested in what i've discussed especially around the engineering uh point of you know the points that were raised then uh, do get, get in touch with us via the via the website 
Okay, Lawrence, thanks very much. I've enjoyed this conversation. I've enjoyed listening to um, what you've done and your experiences. We're hoping with the alumni podcast to follow your progress. Um, do you agree to that? Yeah, um, Neville, uh, absolutely a pleasure to have you here. Um, again, I please let me sing your praises. I think, I think you're excellent at this job, and uh, I would definitely want to continue working with you again. So whatever podcast come my way, let's, let's do it. Okay, Lawrence, thanks very much, and we'll meet again next time. Oh, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the next alumni meeting. I'll be there. <laughs> A reminder, if you're a Brunel alumni or a current student and you wish to contact Lawrence Barrett or myself, Neville J. McKenzie, you can do so through LinkedIn.